All right, welcome back, folks. This is the Bibliotheques Podcast. Once again, we are in the summer of Narnia still. We are talking Voyage of the Dawn Treader with our in-house Lewis scholar. My mom, Cody, is joining me as always. How are you guys doing today? We're great, Paul. So here's the deal. Mom, I know that this is one of your, if not f- your favorite of the the Chronicles of Narnia did you reread this recently? Yes. How did it go on the reread and what number do you think it was? Oh, I've probably read this story, I don't know, maybe somewhere between six and 10 times. <laughs> somewhere between six and 10. I like it. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, re- the reread was awesome. And, and when was the last time you think you re- reread this? Oh, I don't know. I probably five years ago, every once in a while, I just reread the Chronicles because they just are so joyful. It's just good for my spirit to reread them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, um, you know, the, the thing that I was wondering about when, you know, I, I've thought about this in, in some of our previous episodes with you, but for whatever reason, it stuck out more to me on this one being, you know, five years older than maybe the last time you read this book and now having all of your kids out of the house at this point and reading a story all about young children and one in particular where kids are kind of like growing up throughout. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it hits you any differently as you kind of like go, you know, if it hit you differently at read 10 versus read one, just based on the age of your kids. Uh, No, I don't think so. I think... I think that uh, Lucy especially is so mature that she's, I don't know, she's always kind of like a young adult to me through the whole thing, which is where you guys are. So it doesn't strike me differently that way. You know, she is a young adult, Keely, but what I like about this book specifically, and I'm just going to plant my flag in the at Insofar as the books we've read, this has been my favorite as well. I've said that in some of our explainer ones earlier. I have just fallen in love with this story in particular. I think what I liked about it too is because I think this is one of the first ones, um, you know, in in the in uh, Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, there aren't too many lessons for Lucy to learn on her own. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about um, Prince Caspian was that she learns that lesson about faith to Aslan. And this one was less... But that one was more of a lesson of like, she didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. She was more or less like just not making a, a decision towards Aslan. And this one, she's really tempted and really, and actually messes up when she reads the book. And so she, I think she grows up the most in this one, even though she has been the most mature and the most Narnia centered of all the children. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, as a, as a way of framing this conversation, Lewis kind of gives us a great framework because we talked about this in previous episodes, but the way that this one is set up somewhat unlike the other ones is it's almost like you could shoot this as like a series, like it's a series of different episodes. And of course it's like that because we're Island hopping, we're at sea. So there's a natural kind of break in our stories as they go. So Mm -hmm it offers us kind of a nice framework just to kind of make our way through this story. So I think we can just start kind of right off the top with our intro. And, you know, mom, we get introduced on in sentence one to Eustace Scrub, who at the beginning of this book is really just a just a little piece of shit kid. And I don't want to like pressure you into answering this if you don't want to. So just feel free to say pass. But do you have any Eustace-like children that you're currently teaching? She's thinking. (laughs) Well, I want to answer authentically. Um, We can qualify it with have in the past to protect any current students. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No kidding. And again, you can say pass. Well, okay, so let's make sure we define what Eustace like is, okay? And then maybe if I do that, I will be able to say yes or no. So Eustace is a wimp. He is a bully, which typically those things go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. He's spoiled. Uh, kind of funny things, like he just 
really doesn't get any exercise. He's not really encouraged to be a good person. That's, you know, virtue is not really something that his his family seems to value. He doesn't value. I would say, honestly, that while I know these people exist, I, I don't think I've ever taught anyone with this particular set of, you know, areas for growth, we would say in a nice way. I don't, I don't think I have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an all encompassing terrible package that I think is hard to match. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Unless you're like some other fantasy character that somebody else is writing about. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be pretty surprised if someone turned in some sort of journal entry into you for homework and it read like one of Eusis's diary entries. That'd be pretty, pretty upsetting. (laughs) Yes. Although, you know, what's great about Eustace is even though he is a composite that you don't encounter very often, we all have aspects of Eustace, you know, like when we lie to ourselves, you know, like your example of the, the journal, I mean, that's a great example of how we do lie to ourselves and and think we're doing things for other people's benefit when really it's it's for our own. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's got we all have a bit of Eustace in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the the great thing about Lewis is I don't think he's afraid to. First of all, he's not afraid to show some of those awful characteristics of Eustace in some of his other characters. Yeah. We have moments throughout this book where other people show that kind of, you know, lack of virtue and it comes as a surprise. And that happens sometimes because like you said, we all have some of that in us. But yeah. one of the things that I love about the way Lewis writes Eustace is that, and this just goes back to Lewis's incredible brevity and the way that he's able to convey so much in so little real estate. Mm-hmm. Everything that you just said about Eustace, everything that's awful about him, we as the reader kind of just get, we understand in one page. Mm-hmm. And the things that I love that Lewis throws in there <laughs> is talking about things like just weird little details like liking to pin beetles to cork boards and also the fact that Eustace reads all of the wrong books and that he's more he's more fixated on like nonfiction and has no idea how to tell a real story now now this is where I put up a little bit of a bumpers on this conversation as someone who does enjoy reading nonfiction books about governments and bureaucracies. They have a place. Oh, Cody thoughtful and educational books. It is just, I under, but I understand that in the context of like Keely said, all the other components, Mm -hmm. you, you, you paint a pretty clear picture of someone who's not very fun to have a conversation with. Well, and the thing I wondered, especially because of the way Lewis describes the books that Eustace likes, do you do either of you feel like he's alluding to um, something like communism, something that would be coming out of Stalinist Russia? That, well, it's that- funny. I I read that as more. This is a kid that reads more or less like textbooks. Like something purely educational, like the memorization of facts mm-hmm. and being able to recite them while having their educational value is something that he seems as a point of intellectual pride as opposed as opposed to the the intellectual and creative value of fiction books, yeah, stories and fantasy. That's kind of how I read it. That like he's reading a book about the history of that the Habsburg monarchy and different key figures and like how each one ran Vienna differently. Yeah. As opposed and, to like, oh, there's a, here's a, here's like a, 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 a humanities book about the history of Greek myth. Yeah. No, I, things. I think that your interpretation is, is the, is the safer one. I'm kind of going off on a little tangent, but I like that take though. Like, like he's reading some fascist agitprop or maybe some communists content. Yeah. Strong, I was wondering. strong biblioteque off the, off the top. <laughs> From our from our in house scholar, yeah, uh, Eusis is reading Trotsky. That's fun. <laughs> That's a good one. We haven't had a really really hot one in a while. That one's that one's 
burning in your mouth as you try to consume it. But I do, <laughs> mom, I do think, you know, that is an interesting, that is interesting point. And I don't, you know, I don't think I know enough about what was going on with com like in communism and in that kind of fight at the time that Lewis was maybe writing these. But at the very minimum, I do think that he is saying that there is a difference between truth and fact sometimes. Exactly. And I think beauty and humanity can more easily be found in truth that doesn't necessarily need to be real. And that's exactly why he takes Eustace on this journey with the Pevensey kids. Mm -hmm. I also think that a lot of that was supposed to show Eustace's disconnect from nature. Like instead of admiring beetles and other insects in their natural environment, like in your garden or in the woods, he feels the need to collect and own them. Mm, yeah. Which is like, as a little kid, there's not a lot of destructive things you can do, but it seems like the controlling and killing of animals, as opposed to just like going to a zoo or going on a hike in the woods and you see a deer and being like, that was very special. I feel connected with nature. He feels the need to control and have and collect. And I thought that was also why, because as we've long discussed, Tolkien and Lewis's belovedness of nature is so sacred to them that I think this is the first time we've seen a character like that, right? We've obviously seen like we they push the Narnians into the woods and Prince Caspian and, you know, the Telmarines use nature so much more as like resource mining than actual appreciation. But this one was more of like there are people out there that when they say they appreciate nature or animals, they don't really appreciate it in the way that Lewis and I think myself included would find. Yep. You, I think you guys are right on. So from there, you know, we get introduced to Eustace and we have this awesome, this awesome portal opening to Narnia in just the most creative ways. Like I, I would have loved to just be in the room with Lewis when he's thinking of, okay, how can we get the kids to Narnia? And, you know, Caspian was one where it's like they're being drawn to Narnia by this horn but there isn't a super inventive way of getting them there. Like we have mm -hmm. the portal in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe through the wardrobe. Similarly, here we have it through this painting. And I just think it was a really cool way of doing it, having the room starting to like turn into the ocean, basically. But one thing that we talked about, Mom, and I don't know if you have thoughts on this or not, but in each of the other books, kids have either involuntarily been brought to these other worlds or they have voluntarily chosen to go like through the wardrobe in this one it doesn't seem like they it's not they didn't have a choice and no one called them necessarily from narnia they get there and caspian's just like what's up guys you know yeah so this i'm chalking up to just aslan being like all right we need to get these kids back into Narnia right now, but for no specific reason. Well, I think it's fascinating that you say that because two minutes ago when you guys were talking, I thought to myself, I never thought about the whole point of this, this book was to get Eustace to Narnia. Mm. I, I mean, what you were saying, Cody, about Eustace's relationship, to nature and Eustace that that in many ways when you really think about it that's the purpose of this book is to get Eustace or this adventure to get Eustace to Narnia because Eustace needed Narnia <laughs> mm -hmm. and he's he definitely did and he's just brought along with the Pevensies because they're probably the best <laughs> chauffeurs for him in that moment oh for sure yeah I also like that the way that they enter Narnia. It reminded me when I read it a lot of when you're a kid and you get distracted in your schoolwork and you maybe see some artwork on your teacher's wall and you just imagine getting sucked into that artwork, whether it's like a science poster and it has some type of like ecosystem like the forest or a desert or something, or it's a history poster and maybe it's like a battlefield or a castle and you can just be like, I can see myself just leaving here, going into that painting and doing that. But this one is just a ship on the ocean. What would it be like if I just got to fully escape, which is a lot of what these Narnia stories are to me. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I don't know, this is, I, this is not that important, but I just think it's so cool how I can totally envision that room 
and that painting, the way he described that scene, I can, I can so feel it. Like I was, I could be there. Mm -hmm. So it's well-written. Totally agree. So we get on to the Don Treader pretty quick in this book, much like all of, you know, Lewis's other books were like right in the action pretty quickly. And we get reintroduced to Caspian, who's a few years older. And to be honest with you, Caspian has more to do in this book, I think, than in Caspian, which is kind of nice because we see a little bit more, I think, of like who this guy is in certain in certain points. Um, yeah. Small doses, I'd say, but certain certain areas we get more of him. The character that I think is almost more has a bigger presence in this story is honestly Reepicheep. Oh yeah. And this is a huge Reepicheep book. Yep. So let's talk about Reepicheep for a little bit because this is a guy who we were introduced as to him as like this valiant knight, but has moments throughout this book that are both very intelligent and tender and very, um, how should I say? He's like a great teammate throughout the rest of this. He isn't just this kind of swashbuckling knight. So I don't know, mom, like Reepicheep for you. Do you, do you like him as a character? Do you get annoyed with him ever? Um, what do you, where do you, She's where do you, shaking f- her head slowly? Right where do you now, fall with Reepicheep? At home? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's a Reepicheep book and you just fall in love with him in this story. You know, uh, and the thing about Reepicheep is he's, he's a, he's a mouse of integrity. You know, he's, he's always going to do, he's going to be truthful. He's going to, you know, what Reepicheep is going to do in any circumstance. And as you said, Paul, that where he's the the friend to Eustace the dragon, you know, so sweet that, that he's the one who goes and talks to Eustace more often when Eustace is feeling so isolated and tries to bring him hope. It, it's, it's just a great, he's just a great character. And his just single-minded desire to get to Aslan's country, it's just so beautiful. And, you know, he also... When you think about it, he's the reason they saved Lord Roop. You know, if it wasn't for Reepicheep, Roop would have been left in that dark place because Reepicheep challenged them and said, we have to go on with this adventure. And and then, of course, he talks Caspian out of his idiotic idea of staying in the utter east, which he cannot do. I mean, Reepicheep is, he's fantastic through the whole thing. I like that. I like what you said about Reepicheep's like single mindedness the whole time, because yeah, that really anchors the story in an emotional way where, where, you know, a lot of the plot of this book is Island, 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 night, 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 checkpoint, got there, checkpoint, got there. And only until the last like third leg of the story is it really kind of like, we are going East, right? Cause that's always on the back burner. It's like, we're going to get all these nights. We're going to map out what lays beyond the Lone Islands. And if we have time, we'll go check out the end of the world. Not Reepicheep. He's like, we're going. If you guys won't go, I'll go until I drown. That's my plan. And that actually gives the reader kind of a sense of like, there actually is something after we collect these knights and figure out their whereabouts. So it from like even like a plot story standpoint, Reepicheep's goal is so important, even mm-hmm. if the day-to-day stuff doesn't usually connect with it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Reepicheep's place in this story reminds me a lot of one of the themes from Prince Caspian, where Caspian is met with um, this opportunity to involve some of these evil creatures in the overthrow of the Telmarines, right? And it isn't Reepicheep in that moment that is like dissuading him not to Caspian actually does a good job himself of being like, nah, let's let's not go down that road. But that theme of it matters how you get to the destination also, not just that you get there. 
And Mm -hmm. Reap a Cheap, to me, carries that theme into this book. And it has a lot to do with what you guys are talking about, that single-minded nature, but also the, like you said, mom, he is that mouse with integrity. So throughout this journey that they're on, it matters to Reap a Cheap, not only that they get to the utter east, but that they're checking boxes as they go, in a sense, where... Like, no, we're not leaving this awful kid behind on this island as a dragon. That's not an option. We aren't going to avoid this darkness and say like, oh, well, let's just skip around that and get to the end. Like, <laughs> I'm Reaper Cheap, and that means that we're doing this the right way, not just going from start to finish, zigzagging around all of the difficult decisions. Yeah. That's true. So with Reaper Cheap being introduced and all of the kids on board, you know, Eustace is being just a pill, but we get pretty closely to our first destination of the Lone Islands. And as our first stop, it was interesting to me that Lewis, first of all, takes this opportunity to throw some more digs at Callerman and yeah. also... Um, uses it as a way of telling the reader Caspian is a capable ruler and continuing on from the last story, Prince Caspian, he is this liberator still. So he freed old Narnia from their kind of chains as it were. And in the first little episode of our journey, he's going in and he's freeing these slaves as well as just taking control of the Lone Islands and bringing it under Narnian rule again. How do you view this as like th- this part when I'm looking at this, this is a Caspian section of the book and maybe the only like true Caspian and Caspian only section of the book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think all the things you said about it are true. Caspian, I think Caspian, it's interesting, you know, Caspian is, he's good at taking advice, you know, the the Lord that's on the island tells him, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. He listens to him. He's decisive. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great showcase for, for Caspian being a good ruler, a smart king. I like that Caspian's also, like, like at the end of, Caspian, he notes to Aslan, I don't know if I'm ready. And he's like, that's why you're ready. You know, that classic trope. But he he's not only a good listener, he's a really good delegator. Like he doesn't ever tell Druidian, his captain, you know, how to pull the, the ropes or do anything with the boat. He's like, this is your domain. Like you're obviously going to go where I tell you to go. And there's obviously that level of that chain of command. But he's like, he's never micromanaging. You're like, hey, I think we should be rowing faster or I think you should put the stern a little bit over to port or any of the other nautical nonsense that he, that uh, Lewis writes in this book. And he does know like I'm good at this and I'll do, and I'll let you know when I need things done, but I'm also not going to interrupt you while you're doing your job. Yeah, no, that's true. Speaking of how did you like all the we we made a joke that it's very clear that when Lewis wrote this book, he had recently learned how to sail and just wanted everyone to know that he knew everything about the areas of the boat. And yeah, you know, I have to admit, for me, I always think one of these days I'm going to read this this book with a boat diagram in front of me because I I just kind of wish I knew this stuff. I think it's kind of cool. But he, he definitely goes to a lot into a lot of detail on that. Yeah, he even tells the reader that left is port and right is starboard because he isn't going to be referring it to it as anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, and, you know, maybe that's part of his trying to bring the reader into the, you know, into the ship, into the experience. Yeah. And he does a great job. I, You know, I think, you know, the Lone Islands is kind of an exciting chapter. I think it, it does, you know, basically like what we were saying, establishing Caspian as a as a capable leader. But from there, I think the rest of the stops that we make along the way are a little bit more meaty in terms of what we're supposed to be taking away from them. And that's, yeah, I agree. That starts, I think, one with 
Eustace being a pain to be around on the ship as they're kind of running low on rations, right? They get caught in this storm. They're all rowing. Eustace thinks that sweat and water are interchangeable. And <laughs> mom, do you have a comment on that? Your face is pretty funny right now. Well, he's that's just Eustace, you know, that combination of lazy and lying to himself and self-centered. Yeah. What I like about that is like he obviously read something somewhere about sweat being a factor in cooling down the human body. And he just conflated that to mean that you can absorb your hydration through your own yeah. sweat. It's just nonsense. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then Eustace quickly after landing on that island finally and like trying to avoid work turns into this dragon and this is probably my favorite part of the book like this section here which honestly is kind of a bummer to me because it's so early on in the story i'm like this is the best part of the book to me except i actually really enjoy the last part too so i can't get that upset but this is the best part of this book. And, you know, we we talked about it a little bit before, but I just want to hear your takes on some of this stuff, mom. So a lot of stuff going on here. Eustace being turned into a dragon. What is Lewis telling us by using a dragon as the animal of choice, the mythical creature of choice here? You know, Reepicheep being friendly to him and Lucy as well, and both of them basically refusing to leave the island before they know where Eustace is, and after they figure out he's a dragon, figuring out what they're going to do with him to be able to, you know, get him on board or whatever. But then also this whole, the whole Aslan interchange and everything. I just love to hear your thoughts on starting maybe with just the choice of a dragon. Well, I just want to say, first of all, I totally agree. It is the best part of the story. It's the part of the story that. You know, if you haven't read Voyage of the Dawn Treader in 10 years, this is the part you're going to remember. And uh, the choice of a dragon, I mean, it out of that treasure trove, that is the epitome of the evil creature, right? You know, um, and of course it has, you know, dragons are the evil creature in lots of stories because of biblical overtones. I mean, certainly there's a horrible dragon in Revelation. And dragons are basically like worms or snakes. So you've got from the beginning of the Bible till the end, you've basically got a creature like this that epitomizes evil. But I'm not saying that's why Lewis chose a dragon. That's I'm saying that's why dragons are always the ultra bad guy in these stories. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this great ability with this, you know, leopard-like, snake-like creature that it's we all know they shed their skins. We all know that there's layers and layers to these creatures because we've all seen a, sh- a shedded snake skin or a shedded lizard skin. And so it's a, you know, what Lewis wants to do with Eustace becoming a new creation, right? And, and it's going to hurt, you know, it's not something that we can casually do. You know, we need, we need Aslan's intervention and, it's 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 going to take some sacrifice and you know it's just a perfect analogy for for what he wants to do to show the transformation and it's so interesting how you know Eustace I think like so when we when we get older you know people will say or I I don't know Paul if you've ever heard me say that when I'm an old extra old woman like I'm already getting older but when I'm extra extra old there's different ways you could be an old person you can be old old and mean and crotchety or you can be kind and it basically comes down to practice you know and Eustace has been practicing being a jerk and so it just the dragon is the outward manifestation of that and um but what's interesting is as soon as he becomes a dragon like it's sort of like you flirt with this stuff your whole life, then boom, there you are. And now he's lonely, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that's the thing that I think is fascinating about the story is, is his way of alienating himself from everyone. He doesn't really realize that's what he's doing. When he comes a dragon, now he has to deal with the fact that he separated himself from basically 
everyone else, you know, all other humans essentially. Yeah. And it's, it's weird to put it, uh, it's, it, it feels strange putting it this way, but Eustace in a sense is actually lucky that his transformation was so dramatic and so sudden, right? Because as you were saying, these awful habits that end up making us who we are, if we choose to go down that road, they're gradual. And it's not like you wake up one day, look in the mirror and see this awful person standing in front of you. But Eustace has this moment or he has the, again, weird to say, but the fortune of having such a dramatic revelation where he looks in this pond, looks himself in the face and sees the embodiment of this evil, of this awfulness, right? Yeah. And and from there, that's right where this loneliness really sets in. But another part of, I think, what's so fortunate about this is anybody who is who can catch themselves being awful or turning into something they don't want to, like Eustace, they can become very useful all of a sudden and decide, like, this is not what I want to be. I need to change my ways. And that's what Eustace does almost immediately, is he starts helping with the ship, he starts helping hunting, and he becomes a better person almost in a way to justify this recreation by Aslan. Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you think about it, because, and and uh, Lewis makes this point a couple of different times, if Eustace had known the kind of people he was with, he would never have thought dot, 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 right? And I think one of the things that Lewis is saying is, if it wasn't for the bravery and the basic kind-heartedness you know, it took courage to face this dragon and it took kindness to have empathy and not be repelled by this dragon. It's these people that are part of his transformation as well. I mean, ultimately it's Aslan, but, you know, he's also very fortunate that he has this kind of people. You know, a lot of people, when they're really bad, there's people around them who are going to have a time of day for them. And the only thing that's going to happen is they're going to get even worse. Mm-hmm. And more isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I also like that uh, Lewis really emphasized that, you know, Eustace never accepts the environment he's in. He always thinks that he's back in some earthly realm. And even when all the people around him are being like, no, this is the way this world is. You need to act accordingly. He still refuses and kind of sinks inward on his idea of the world. So where's the British like, consulate? T- yeah, the British, he's demanding the British consulate on the Lone Islands. Like, man, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. There's no passport office here. <laughs> also, you were you were almost sold into slavery minutes ago. <laughs> you were so up the river on slavery that they couldn't even sell you. Yeah. But I, this, I mean, also just this, I, I think that it's it's very intentional that not only does Eustace get to turn back into a boy because Aslan's there, but he has to do work himself. So not only is Aslan there to help him out, but it's how are you helping the people that you're with? So like he's reconstructing this ship. He's helping them to get ready to go again. But also in the, you know, let's just call a spade a spade here, the baptism by Aslan. The Mm -hmm. first part of that comes by Aslan telling him, you need to take the skin off yourself. And Eustace mm-hmm. can only get so far, and then Aslan has to do the rest. So right. that's a pretty clear, I think, a pretty clear sign from Lewis that's like, hey, if you're living a good Christian life, basically you have to do a lot of the work. And then at the very end, our Lord and Savior will be there to clean up the rest, basically. But it's on you for for a lot of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that, Paul. Lewis, you know, I, I think I mentioned on another bibliotheques that uh, Lewis, uh, Tolkien wanted Lewis, when he came back to the church, to come all the way back. Pardon me, that reflects bias. But <laughs> um, to cut, you know, to on a continuum, 
from mm-hmm. yes. to Catholicism. And, and Lewis stops at Anglicanism, which is his faith of his child or his, you know, he's English. Yeah. Angl- you know, yeah. most of the people there are Anglican, way fewer Catholics. And I, I've always believed that's uh, because for Lewis, that faith versus works equation Lewis is going to be more on the Aslan side than on the Eustace side in terms of who's doing the heavy lifting. Yep. But I think that your point is still well made, Paul, that Eustace was involved in the transformation. He was, he did play his part. I agree. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, mom, because honestly, that, that confused me a little bit reading this because I remembered you saying that he was an Anglican. And I was just kind of like, hmm, it's interesting to me that Lewis is is even having Eustace do a lot of this stuff before yeah. Aslan's intervention. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a, uh, it, that de- definitely struck me. Well, I think it's, I think you're both right because in the immediate aftermath of that, Eustace gets to talk to Edmund about this mm-hmm. and Edmund's the one who gets, who, you know, as the one who has previously done the big doo-doo and had, <laughs> had to, had to speak, uh, had to have the worst talk of his life with Aslan. He's even the one that says like, yeah, there's a reason you couldn't do everything. You had an encounter with Aslan. He's, he's the one in Narnia. He's the one who is able to save you like that and always comes like that. So I think, I think, that yeah, like there's a reason that you met him. It is like you, and I'm glad that you recognize that you need to change because you know before that he's like trying to speak. I'm a dragon. I can't talk. The tide's coming in my communication. I'm lonely. There's a lot of Eustace-centered talk about being a dragon, and so I think the Eustace side of it is definitely covered. But yeah, that other side of, but the only one who's able to even make a dent in getting you back to the way it's supposed to be is Aslan. Mm-hmm. And and Edmund's like he's the guy that does that around here. Mm-hmm. If there's mm-hmm. any source of magic, or if there's ever so- any source of redemption, it's always Aslan. It's never really anything else. Yeah, and what a great. I mean, Cody, you just saying that just made me think of something else. But what a what a great way of just emphasizing Eustace's loneliness by removing his ability to communicate with the rest of his team. That is, I mean, that's brilliant. There's no reason that Lewis, like Lewis could have made him a talking dragon, you know, like he could have done that, but he didn't. And it, it works so well. And I like that being a dragon makes it extra lonely because even though, you know, like Keely said, dragons are such a, just an always enemy of the hero, at least in Western literature, a lot of times in Western literature and in the Bible and stuff, but dragons are also about as fearsome and mighty of an enemy as exists he even goes to say like eustace is way more useful as a dragon than he is a <laughs> human boy he's yeah. hunting he's scouting the island he is giving the team fire he you know he can't hammer a board into the ship and repair the dawn treader but he basically guarantees their survival on that island for a good week but he can't share that success with anyone right he has to eat his meals in private because he's so gross he can't speak with anyone. He only gets these kind of little moments with Reaper Cheap and Lucy. Everyone else is pretty much being like, hey, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> Just dragon that was once a boy on our ship. Like that's that's kind of he, he he can't not hear that. So it's, like, it's almost like his loneliness is amplified because he can't share in the newfound contributions he's making to the group. Oh, Cody, just gems, just gems. And honestly, the, I didn't even think about the part where he isn't eating with people too, but you know, that's a big deal to Lewis. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the, the, the meal is so important to the Lewis Tolkien canon and being forced to eat alone and being ashamed of how you have to eat. That'd be, that's about as bad a banishment as any bodily transformation can be. Yeah. Well, I, okay, so l- let's keep this moving because we've got a lot of book left to talk about here. We determined that one of the lords was left on this island. We move on, right? And it's here that we get this really cool like sea serpent scene, which I don't think we need to like discuss a whole lot other than the fact that like really cool and awesome just creative writing chops by Lewis to create this scene. 
Um, I don't know, mom, if you have anything to add about this, about this little bit. No, just, it's one of the fun repeat cheap scenes, you know, where he figures out what to do right, right away and saves the day. Yeah. And most interestingly, it's, it's not fighting the serpent, right? I don't know how much else we want to talk about the island hopping. Um, we can talk about, I think I want to get to two more points, the, the magician and then the island of Romandu. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the only one thing that I want to, uh, just, just mention really quick, cause I brought it up at the beginning was this scene on death water where oh, yeah. we do get some of that, you know, Eustace like character out of Edmund and Caspian. And yeah. here it's also Aslan's appearance that kind of settles things down. So just mm-hmm. another, another moment where Aslan is, you know, ever present and kind of there along this whole journey to make sure we're pointed in the right direction and yeah. and doing the things that we should be. Well, okay. And before we get to the magician though, I just want to at least spend a couple minutes on the, the nightmare Island, the dark Island. Oh yeah. Cause that to me, that scene is so amazing. And I think it's so well written, you know, where it dawns on everyone. These are not, these are not daydreams. They're your nightmares. Uh, we talked about how if it wasn't for Reepa Cheap, they would have left this poor Lord group. But my favorite thing is Lucy up, you know, where she is, way up high. And she utters this prayer, you know, Aslan, if you ever loved us. And and then she starts to feel a tiny bit better. And then the albatross starts to circle. And this one of the most beautiful things, you know, some of the things about Lucy and Aslan that are so just gorgeous, courage, dear heart, you know, it's just so beautiful. And, you know, and then Aslan is the albatross, you know, and he's guiding him out of that. It's, I just think it's a gorgeous scene. I just love it. Yeah. And, and being able to write something in such a black and white way, quite literally where you're talking about a pitch black, you know, it's a black hole at sea essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Lewis's ability to pierce that with light throughout this, throughout this passage is really striking um, and just beautifully done. So I totally agree with you, but Cody, you, uh, were antsy to get to, uh, to get to the magician. Well, I don't think we need to spend too much time on the duffel puds. They're very funny and very cute. And, you know, we talked a lot about how the the frustration of the magician is really funny. Just that his, his punishment isn't that he's in prison or that he's alone. Quite opposite. He has to nurture and care for subjects who adamantly oppose his really basic and good advice. Well, and one other thing I I think is worth tossing in is, you know how sometimes all the guys will have their sword. Sometimes we'll hear that Lucy has arrow to the string, but sometimes Lucy's not involved in fighting. But here's another great example of where you, you just know Lucy, it, Lewis loves this character and she's very brave. You know, it's a different kind of bravery. It's a bravery that Lewis can wrap his mind around for a female. And I, you know, there's some <laughs> issues there, but I still think Lucy just straight up, I'm going up those stairs if that's what needs to happen. And then again, reap a cheap, right? Saying, you know, if the queen's majesty, you know, finds it in her heart to do this, then she should do it. So it's kind of fun. I I just think it's a great, uh, it's written really well and fun. Yeah. And it's also, you know, one of the first times I think that we are really kind of testing Lucy in these books, right? Because her encounter with this magician's book, she has some uncharacteristic moments with this, some Mm -hmm. moments of vanity and, you know, moments of wanting to like spy on her friends and you know again it's Aslan in his own ways that kind of 
gets her out of those situations. But I think it's the first, maybe the first indication, at least to me, that Lucy probably isn't coming back to Narnia after this one. And that might be too far. Like that might be too much of a leap. But in that moment, I was just kind of like, Lucy, Lucy's growing up a little bit here. And the fact that she is interested in looking beautiful and wanting to know what her friends might say about her, I think is at least somewhat of an indication that her childness is falling away to some degree. Yeah. Did either of you think about the beauty of Galadriel when you read that passage? Oh, she's Frodo and Shelob's lair here. Don't you think? Well, that's not what I meant. I just meant I just meant the the extreme beauty that she would ultimately oh, have. Yeah. Reminded me of Galadriel. The terrible beauty. Gotcha. Yes, yes. Yep. It did. It reminded me of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, again, these guys are talking to each other, you know? They're reading passages from each other's books. So it's just interesting how they borrow from each other all the time. And it's also, both of those are a warning, right? Galadriel's terrible beauty isn't like a good thing. No. It's not something that even she desires. Like This is what will happen if unhealthy power is bestowed upon me. And the same thing as Lucy, like the unnatural, unhealthy power, well, maybe not unnatural, because it's Aslan's magic and he vouches for the book, but even he's saying you're using it the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the only other thing that I, I want to just talk about, touch on briefly at, at this island stop is Lewis, I think is making a couple points here using the duffel puds and in, you know, preparing for our conversation today, one of the things that I was thinking is in many ways, the magician here is, the magician is in both ways God and us, right? Because we have this duty of stewardship over our environment, and that's what this magician is tasked with. But he's also this kind of like authority over the duffel puds, which made me think, if we're extending the duffel puds to what humanity is, it made it more interesting that Lucy goes out and tries to tell them all that, hey, you aren't ugly this way and they won't believe her. And so I just felt like using three different either characters or groups of characters, Lewis is like, at least in my head, weaving together all of these metaphors for our place as humans and also like our response to maybe like God telling us what to do and not listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you'll allow me, Paul, the Island of Ramandu, um, Keely, can you just kind of explain to me your thoughts on the birds of light <laughs> that baby feed embers of light to this Ramandu guy? His life cycle is a star magician star for eternity what are we what are we looking at here this felt very much like book of john is more kind of ethereal and abstract way more like book of revelations is a lot of stuff in there what is it what does it all connect one to one to something maybe maybe not that's kind of what i was thinking of it right yeah this is pretty abstract it it is i you know it's funny you you asked me that cody because um you know, there's certainly there's a few things that are uh, allegories. Um, you know, the the divine the banquet. Mm-hmm. You know, the heavenly banquet that is eternal. Um, but I'm going to be honest that that table, other than other than the food and this plentiful banquet, which is a you know a common image, it. I don't, I'm not making a lot of connections there. I'm, I'm just kind of rolling with Lewis's kind of almost Mm -hmm. sci-fi abilities. And, and that's, what's going on for me in in that section. I'm, I'm just, I'm not making a lot of connections. I'll be honest. Yeah. It was really hard for me to find it. It's, it, it did read more like 
and maybe he even gives away the game a little bit in later books because like in the magician's nephew he is way more sci-fi than the rest of the books right like it's very much like we're on a whole other planet look at the star it's older there's this ancient city there's some like references to um atlantis which we do get later as well some underwater city magic as well so I don't know. I, I just thought wanted to see if you had any ideas, but that's yeah. kind of what we were too. We were just kind of rolling like, this is really weird. Yeah, yeah. Real weird. And no one asks about it. No one asks for answers. They're just like, whoa. But doesn't that weird? But doesn't that make sense, <laughs> Cody? Because it, it's it's also just kind of it, it's it is sudden, but it's also kind of a an introduction of sorts into the strangeness that this world will take on as we get further and further east right Mm -hmm. because these birds are insane Ramandu's crazy his daughter who doesn't have a name in this book it's just kind of like a weird section but at least to me it serves as a great starting point to basically introduce us to our world getting less and less something that you can really hold on to and more and more something that's like, okay, this is, this is like Aslan. This is out of our world now. Right. Mm -hmm. Because shortly after Ramandu's Island, this is when we start going East. And I love this section because it's just breathtakingly beautiful the entire time. It's getting brighter and brighter gradually. The water is sweet and nourishing and also able to like, it acts as a, you know, a sunscreen of sorts. So you can withstand the brighter and brighter sun every day and you can go further and further without eating or drinking anything else. And it just makes so much sense because we're getting closer and closer to the least worldly thing that can be, which is Aslan and his country, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, we also get the actual confrontation with Aslan. That confrontation, that sounds confrontational, but the the final appearance of Aslan in that green country kind of to the south of where the wall of water is. And when they sit down and speak with Aslan, he really, not that it wasn't really obvious, but he gives away the game at the end where he says, I exist in your world, but I go by another name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the guy shows up as a lamb, right? <laughs> and turns into a lion. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that, I don't know about you guys, but again, that, that wave that the, the sunlight, shines through it's it's like the rain curtain in frodo's image at the you know at the end of lord of the rings yeah so nerd alert i was uh watching return of the king the extended edition today and as gandalf is saying that line which is taken out of context in the movie in a beautiful way i will add but taken out of context nonetheless (laughs) it's the first thing I thought of was just like, oh, this is this is Aslan's country. Like he's mm-hmm. talking about Aslan's country. The gray rain curtain of the world <laughs> rolls back and all is silver glass. Are you kidding me? That's what we're exactly. talking about here. Right. A far green country under a swift sunrise. Mm-hmm. Mm. You could easily just take that passage from Lord of the Rings, copy and paste it into this book, and it would flow perfectly. It would. It would. They've got the same image in their head. Do, sure. do you think they who do you think they had to do a coin flip for who got west and who got east in their descriptions? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, hey man, I'm the, it's the Dawn Treader. <laughs> I can't have you going east. I can't do west. That's not where the dawn is. And Tolkien's like, fine, I'll go west. I'm still talking about a sunrise though. And he's like, fine, that's fine. Seriously, <laughs> did you guys even talk about how so everything about this book, I love this book so much. The name. Yeah. Like, isn't that the best name for a ship I, heading I east? The Dawn Treader. 
Yeah, and I love that Caspian says, like, any of you who go with us to Aslan's country will get to have the title Dawn Treader for the rest oh, of your days. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, so the other thing I was thinking about, and I don't know, this might be too much, but, you know, as people get, as people, I'm sorry, maybe I'm sounding a little uh, morbid tonight, but I don't mean it that way because for me, Aslan's country is a beautiful uh, place to be. Uh, but as people get older, sometimes, you know, they stop eating. You know what I'm saying? Like when people are getting closer and closer to death, they they are just like, you know, I don't really want to eat. And I I don't know. I wonder if that was something that Lewis had on his mind as they're moving, you know, towards the, the sea of the lilies. And mm-hmm. in other words, the food of this world is not interesting anymore mm. to a different place. So. Well, yeah, and, and and also water is so important to this story, and the water of baptism is so important in the story too. That it, I don't think it's a secret that you know everything that is being supplied in some sort of endless capacity is always Aslan, right? The sweet right. endless water, the wave that never ends, the endless banquet feast at Aslan's table, yeah. always provided closer and closer to the end. And isn't the, that image of all those lilies is so beautiful too, you know? Mm-hmm. And oh, you know, gosh. of course, lilies, lilies are a, an Easter image, but I just think, I don't know, are you ever out on a lake and you think of this story? I, I do sometimes, you know, going through all the lily pads and I, I think of this story. Yeah. Really quick. I just want to, just want to say, so our story ends with Lucy and Edmund's being told they'll never come back to Narnia, but they're going to have to learn Aslan by another name. And Eustace being told that he will likely come back to Narnia. So you can only assume that Eustace is going to be with us in Silver Chair next time. And our our story pretty much just kind of comes to a close there. Mom, as somebody who loves Lucy as much as you do, does that make you, does that make you sad at all that she's never coming back to Narnia? Because to me, especially with Lucy and the love she has of this place, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a gut punch almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to answer both and there. Gut punch, yes. I I understand you feel really badly for Lucy, but you also feel like Aslan has done what he needed to do so that she will know him in this world. So yeah, I think she's ready to make that transition. Yeah, she's going to hear someone talk about the passion of the Christ and be like, I think I saw that with my eyes one time. That sounds really <laughs> familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was he was sad in, in, a, in, a, in the woods in a garden. Okay, and then they tortured him. And then what did they do? Oh, they killed him. Oh, and then later he rose. That sounds right to me. I like that. I think I think that sounds right to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I it's kind of both. Yeah. Okay, shot in the dark question, Mom. But last week, uh, Cody and I discussed the movie interpretation of this book. Have you seen this movie? No. Okay, let's keep it that way. And um... <laughs> Yeah, I heard it was horrible, and I did not want to sully, <laughs> sully my... Uh, You'll be mad the the whole time. You'll be mad the whole time you watch it. Who needs that? I I will say the one, one of the, like the redeeming qualities of the movie though, and you're you're talking about that Lily scene. It's something that is really cool on screen. It's just that ship going through that sea of lilies. So if you're interested in like seeing that rather than reading it, you could look up the scene on YouTube or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. That might not be too bad. They also actually uh, build upon the relationship between Eustace and Reepicheep. It's actually, I think, a little bit more fleshed out in the movie. That it's less of a hostile relationship and more of like an unwitting companionship, which I think is a fun twist on it. Okay. Yeah. Other yeah. than that, they, other they, than that, no. They keep you, they keep Eustace a dragon in the movie from like the time he turns into a dragon until uh. After Romandu's Island, yeah, it they he's in, he's a dragon for almost the entire movie. So the plot, well, the the order of islands is completely different. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and that's you know part of one of those aha moments when you're reading a book is you say to yourself, 
he's a dragon and you think like you guys said dragons are mighty they're powerful and everything but they can't fly forever Mm -hmm. and and it really is a conundrum it's like oh yeah this really is an issue that they don't have a way to figure out what to do with eustace you know but it sounds like the movie kind of missed that so yeah Uh, yeah, i won't be seeing it they did not care about that at all Um, okay. It remains that the only really, really good Narnia movie is the first one, which we've talked yep. about is a very, very generous and worthy movie adaptation of the book. Yeah. Agreed. All right, mom. Um, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds here. I just want to hear your elevator pitch to someone our age for why they should read the voyage of the Don Treader. All right. Well, um, uh, because, You open up this book. It's a great adventure. It's a great uh, take a break from your, you know, stress, anything that's worrying you and just just enjoy this adventure and enjoy these characters who just get better with every page. Um, And it's a story about goodness. It's a story about uh, courage and um, self-sacrifice and love for the other. And I think reading uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader kind of can make everybody a better person. Couldn't ask for a better pitch for a book, honestly. <laughs> this book will make you better, and it's not an awful self-help book. So there you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next time, uh, we are going to be back with the first half of The Silver Chair. We've only got two books left, so Silver Chair and Last Battle. Next time, we're going to be uh, tackling the first half of Silver Chair. Mom, thank you so much for coming on again We'll definitely have you on um, at least one more time before the end of our summer and getting now into the fall of Narnia. Um, But uh, we look forward to having you back again. All right. Me too, guys. Thank you. All right, everybody. This has been the Bibliotheques Podcast. We will see you next time. All right. Take care. Have a good one, folks.